This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and the series under consideration is entitled The Unity of the Spirit. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and if you will join us, will you switch off for a little while and read Colossians chapter 3. In our studies last week, we were looking at the first member that is given us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, the first member of this sevenfold unity of the Spirit. One body. At first, it may seem strange that we start with one body. We might have thought the one Lord, or the one hope. But when we go back to chapter 2, to which we are referred by various words in this context, we see that we were reconciled in one body. The both were reconciled in one body. And the both, being reconciled in one body, are in unity. Now it's that peculiar unity, the fact that the middle wall of partition that divided the Jewish believer from the Gentile believer in the early church has gone. And there must be no perpetuation of those distinctions now. So, it rightly starts with the reconciled company, one body. For now, the one body may be considered as, say, the external presentation of the truth of our calling. But God looks upon the heart and works from within. And we may be utterly conforming externally and be utterly apart from God's mind internally. So we are prepared for the next step, aren't we? That James has reminded us in another context that the body without the spirit is dead, being alone. If we consider in the ordinary course of nature the perplexity of mind of a person who we speak of having a split personality, how necessary in the spiritual realm there should be no split personality there should be one spirit if you have one body. And all the diversities that go to make up what we call Christendom is not only the external presentation the one calls themselves by one name and the other calls themselves by another and they have one order of service here and another order of service there but it's the spirit that prompted all those differences that is the true reason. All the attempts to bring folks together in a unity without touching that inner spring, is like continually clipping the tops of a tree and leaving the root to grow again. So we are facing that which is really vital. We read in the scriptures that if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And surely we can say, however near to the unity you may be with regard to your appreciation of your calling and membership one of another, if the spirit is lacking, it will be a dead conformity. So we are facing something that's worth pondering, friends. That there should be one body, but there must also be one spirit. For now, we are faced with problems. We shall look at one passage in a moment, which is taken nearly always by folks as referring to Pentecostal gifts. 
So the moment you speak of one spirit, your mind goes back to 1 Corinthians 12. We went there last time and saw that it spoke of one body. It there says that all the gifts that they received, however diverse they may be, speaking in tongues, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, they all come from one spirit. So that while we leave that in its place and deal with spiritual gifts which we do not possess, yet at the same time, we as members of the body of Christ have different functions to perform. The uh, eye cannot say of the hand, I have no need of thee. There are internal organs as well as external ones, but they all must work in perfect harmony, otherwise you have what they call dis-ease in the body. And that may take place also in the spiritual sense too. So no apology is there for stopping at this halt and say, let us consider a little bit more closely the relationship of the one spirit with the one calling. And remember that of all the titles that God could have chosen, he has not chosen any other but the unity of the spirit. He doesn't say the unity of the body or the unity of the one Lord or the unity of the one common hope that binds you together. He's called it the unity of the Spirit. And in the ch chapter 2, the one Spirit is associated with access in one Spirit. Just as the one body is, is associated with being reconciled to God, the one Spirit says, now you've got access. That is to say, the reconciliation is dead being alone. If you're reconciled to God and you never go into his presence, you might as well never be reconciled at all. So that the reconciliation which is manifest in the word body is made to live and be a reality by the word spirit. In one spirit you have access not only to the Father, not only to God as we speak of, but to the Father. Reconciled to God, access to the Father. Reconciled to God in one body, access in one spirit to the Father. Each one of these statements is making the passage of his supreme importance to us. Now, you know, in the epistle to the Ephesians, we have three outstanding statements with regard to spiritual things. The first one I shall leave with only mentioning in it, because I think most of you who are listening to me, have faced the fact that all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are a result of a choice made by God before the foundation of the world and belongs exclusively to the dispensation of the mystery. That's chapter 1. In uh, chapter 6, we have the very opposite. And it's a principle that will be suggested here, that where your inheritance and your blessings are, there and there only are your legitimate foes, your enemies. It goes on to say here in chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Going back to the Old Testament for a brief moment, in the opening chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, Israel are now ready to enter into the land. They ask permission of the various nations that, are, that lay across their path. They ask permission to walk through on the high road. They say they will pay for their bread and their water. They just want to go on their feet. And God says with regard to these various nations that are in their way, if they object, meddle not with them. But there comes at last a, a nation which is Canaanitish, 
which stood right on the very front of their inheritance. Og, king of Bashan, and Sion, those two. And God uses the same word, meddle with them, he says. Although our version says something about do battle with them. The same word. He said to them, don't meddle with Edom, don't meddle with Moab. That's, that's to do with the outside people now with regard to the church. They're all related to a common father in some sense. But when you get to the very place of your blessings, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but you'll have spiritual opponents and they constitute the warfare. Now what sort of weapon shall we use if we are all spiritual? And what sort of weapon shall we use if we are defending a spiritual inheritance against spiritual foes? Well, you say, certainly, if you've got any sense, you'll use spiritual weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. So I've only got a glimpse at this context of Ephesians 6 to be told that my one weapon is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Well, now that's going to take me back to the central reference that I omitted for the moment in um, chapter where is it just for a moment I just want to make sure chapter 5 verse 18 it says and be not drunk with wine when it is excess but be filled with the spirit now here's a text that is waiting for anyone to come along and prove that Pentecostal outpouring of the spirit is here involved to be filled with the Spirit. Well, let's examine it, because this is serious. If that is so, it cuts across much of the teaching that we've already believed to be true. Nevertheless, we want the truth. And we must be always ready to put it to the test. Be filled with the Spirit. Strictly speaking, if you're aware of the use of the Greek prepositions, You'll be, you'll be conscious that with is rather begging the question to be filled with the Spirit. The word is strictly speaking better translated and it is so in this very epistle by the two little letters by. The, exactly the same word, chapter 2, verse 18. Let's get two or three uh, illustrations. Chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access, access by one spirit. Now nobody in his senses would say with one spirit, for that's not the meaning. By one spirit is the true rendering. Or verse 22, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the spirit, or by the spirit, or in spirit, but not with spirit. And 518 is exactly the same expression. So, to be consistent in their translation. They ought to have said, be filled by the Spirit. Or would you say, that looks a little different, doesn't it? Because to an English ear, to be filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit enters into you. But to be filled by the Spirit means that, let me for a moment illustrate this, Those who are in this meeting can see that I picked up a decanter and a glass. And I say, well now, I will now fill that glass with this decanter. Oh, and the little boy says, oh, he's going to do a trick. He's going to put the decanter inside the glass. 
Well, that's what you're doing with this passage. Filled with the Spirit, you say the Spirit's going into you. No, this is what filled by the Spirit is. You fill it by the glass. The glass doesn't go in. There was a drop went in, friend. See? It's filled by means of that glass with something else. What's the something else? Well, now you say, are we, are we left guessing? We are not left guessing, friends. You've got very bad memories, like I have, I know. But I believe some of you already remember that in the reading we had in Colossians 3, we read these words, verse 19. I'm reading from Ephesians. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Didn't we have those words? Let's look at them again, shall we? In Colossians chapter 3. He says here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So the one body is still in mind there. Now then, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now those words were written by the same apostle, written during the same dispensation, and from all the evidences we have, written almost at the same period, writing to two churches. So in one epistle he says, be filled by the Spirit, and the other he doesn't say anything about the Spirit, he tells you what the Spirit fills you with, the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ is the witness of the Spirit to us. He shall not speak of himself, said Christ in John's Gospel, he shall glorify me. He shall take of the things of Christ and show them unto you. So, we come back to Ephesians. And there's no, no idea in Ephesians 5.18 that we should be filled with Pentecostal gifts. We should be filled with the word of Christ as we allow the word of Christ under the influence of the Spirit to enter into our heart and life. Supposing we look a little bit more closely while we've had that in mind, at the usage of the word filled in Ephesians. Because if we are going to be filled with Pentecostal gifts, you would imagine there would be some reference to it somewhere, in some form. If you look at the end of chapter 1, Christ is exalted at the right hand of God, all things are put under his feet, and he's been given to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, there's the body again. Now what about the filling? The fullness of him that filleth all in all. Is that to be limited to the outpouring of Pentecostal gifts? Or do we connect that with Ephesians chapter 4 verse 10 He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And um, uh, just to remember and take advantage of the fact that when we were reading Colossians 3, we started with, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, and ended up with wives and husbands. And instead of that being a contradiction, it's just what should be. That there should be no division of opinion, and no dividing of our teaching between heavenly places and the home in which you live. Oh, friends, I wonder. But still, I'm only saying what it should be, you see. So, 
When we come to Philippians, the word to fill is found in a very different context, chapter 4. Philippians 4.19 It arises out of verse 18 by the fact that the verse commences with the word but. Verse 18 You have sent me a gift, but I have all and abound. I am full. Well, he was full, but he wasn't filled there with Pentecostal gifts. He was filled there with some other gift that had been sent to him by those believers in of the Philippian church. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God, but my God shall fill to the full all your need. That's the word supply. And of course it means supply, but it's nice to know that it's the same word, fill. So this is how God fills. Some of your needs, friends, will be filled by God through the instrumentality of somebody else like the Philippians to Paul. It doesn't alter the fact it comes from God. But it may not come down from heaven with all the startling evidences of the day of Pentecost. It may come through somebody's banking account. He may write a check or he might do something. But it's all here. Filling. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And turning to Colossians to complete this thought, there are three references there I want to bring together. Colossians 1.9 For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Filled with the knowledge of his will. That's a fitting that we could well pray for continually. It's a part of a prayer. Chapter 2.20 Now wherefore, if he be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as those living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in all in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh? You say, well, where's the word fill come there? Well, here's the word waiting you at the last line of that verse 23. Not in any honour, except to the filling of the poor old flesh, you're supposed to be denying. You see, if you submit yourself to the ordinances of men, and your idea of sanctification is what you don't do, touch not, taste not, handle not, see? Well, you'll puff up the poor old man to such an extent that you won't know where you begin or end. It's only satisfying, filling the flesh. Instead of that, our sanctification is a positive thing. It first of all looks to and draws from only the risen Christ. And chapter 4, while we're about it, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and filled to the full, complete, in all the will of God. So there's no doubt that we should be filled. And there's no doubt we can only be filled by the Spirit if these things are to be experienced by us, for they're not ministered in any other way and cannot be received in any other form. If you would turn back to Romans the 8th chapter, you'll find that he has developed there a series of statements 
regarding the spirit, which I think we do well to um, notice. It says in chapter 8, verse 5, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So it sorted them out. There's no possibility of the flesh entering into the unity of the spirit. And we do well to, to watch our step with regard to those things. It says further down, in another context, that the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then in um, a verse 15, or in verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So the sons of God that we sang about in our opening hymn, Blessed are the sons of God, they are bought with Christ's own blood. We could also sing, Blessed are the sons of God, they are led now we've got to make it rhyme with something. They're led by his spirit because that's a part of their calling. And then he goes on to say, for he have not received the spirit of bondage. Now that brings into light the idea that the word spirit sometimes means the essential essence of a thing and has no reference to what we might call the spirit of God. For instance, an extreme case. In the book of the Revelation, Jerusalem, had become so debased that it was spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Well, that's, a, that's an op- impossible thought that it was spiritually, in the sense of spiritually minded. It means to say, in essence, Jerusalem had become practically like Sodom and Egypt. What it is here, we have not received the spirit of, a do- uh, of bondage. That is not the essence of our calling. We have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit itself or himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So there's the witness. And then you'll find that this is anticipating the blessed hope that is in front of God's people. We have the spirit of adoption now. That means to say we haven't got the reality now. Because the Spirit means we've got the earnest of it now. And we're waiting for the reality. You see, I'm quoting Ephesians again. We're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. We haven't got that inheritance yet. We are sealed unto the day of redemption, but the day of redemption hasn't come yet. And it's coming here again in Romans the 8th, if you'll go on with me and look at a few more passages. He says in verse 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We'll get to it in a minute, friends. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only so, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now what are the first fruits of the Spirit? The first fruits of the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. You've got it now in earnest. 
You're going to have it in reality. Here comes the reality now, friends. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. What are we waiting for? The adoption. Not the spirit of it, but the reality. And what's the reality? To wit, the redemption of our body. Resurrection glory. So you see, the spirit can sometimes be used as an anticipation of that which is yet to come. So we've got the one spirit, and it involves most of those features. Well now we'll come back again to the epistle to the Ephesians. And we'll want to look again at the way in which the Spirit is used in some passages. Chapter 113 we've partly touched upon. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, and it would be better if it was rendered upon believing, not a long time after, there are some who base their teaching of a second blessing on the word after. First of all, you're saved. And then a long time after, perhaps, you have a second blessing and you enter into this next phase. But whether that's true or false, it's not true of this passage. But it simply means that upon believing, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Now, do you notice, we were sealed and we have the earnest. Will you turn back to the second Corinthians and the first chapter? It's good to see the way in which certain teaching is introduced. So I'll go back on this story in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, verse 15. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before that you might have a second benefit. Paul is telling them of his plan to give them a second visit and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. So he knew where he was going or where he wanted to go. Macedonia, Judea and Corinth. So he got his plans made out. And that's perfectly right, friends. We should never be slipshod and say, well, I hope I'll be taking a meeting somewhere sometime because that won't be much good to anybody, will it? Because we're so spiritually minded, we forget our diary, we forget our train, we forget the date. Oh, no, no. Now, what's the apostle out to say? But he says, oh, wait a minute. When I therefore was thus minded, that is to say, I made my plans, <coughs> I'm coming to you, I want you to help me to come to Macedonia, I want you to help me back on my way to Judea, see? When I made these plans, when I was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But you say, you're going to break your word at every turn, Paul. Always, well, I don't mean that. But he says, I always have to make my plans with this reservation. If the Lord will. Some people, of course, put DV. And some say, if the Lord will. Well, we ought to remember that it should be. Not merely DV or if the Lord will as a, as a can phrase, but a reality. He says, I made those plans. I couldn't do any otherwise. But I'm gonna, not going to say, because I made those plans, I'm going to stick to it. He said, supposing the Lord alters the plans, what do I do? But if God is true, he said, our word toward you was not yea and nay. Don't you think that my gospel preaching is of the same character? 
the word that God's given me is not going to be altered, so that's all right. Now he leads on. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, that preaching was not yea and nay, but in him was yea, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him the amen unto the glory of God by us. Now, he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now you see the Corinthian church, they also were sealed, they also had the earnest, but they had something extra. They were established and they were anointed. Now if you look back at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that this word established, which is there translated uh, a little differently, has to do with supernatural gifts. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance, and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed, that's the word established, in you, so that you come behind in no gift. <coughs> so he's writing to the church and reminding them that all these gifts that they had in such an abundance was to confirm them in the faith. And then the word anointing, which comes in 1 Corinthians 12 in a disguised form, we might just look at the verse. Verse 12, <coughs> For as the body is one and of many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one, so also is the anointed. Our version says, so also is Christ, and we immediately think of our Saviour. But this is referring to the anointed company, which he's speaking about all the time with these gifts. And um, it's not possible to read verse 12 and make it literally speak of Christ. So also is the Christ, as we've got it. So also is the anointed one, as it would be understood by them. For by one spirit are we all baptised into one body, as it goes on to say. Then if you'll turn to the first epistle of John, you have the reference to the anointing. The first epistle of John. There he says, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 27, About the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. Well, you see, we, uh, there's something wrong with us if this is supposed to be our position. If we have had this anointing, well, I'm wasting my time up here, aren't I? Because you don't need that any man teach you. He goes on to say, But as the same anointing teaches you all of all things and is truth and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And there's an emphasis there, you see, on the two. So, in the days of the Acts of the Apostles when supernatural gifts were given in the Pentecostal form, they had the seal and the earnest, they had the confirmation by the gifts and the anointing. In the Ephesians, we have the seal and the earnest, thank God that remains. But there's no confirming of our faith by an anointing, in the sense that we have no need of anyone to teach us. That element does not belong to our calling. And then if you look at chapter 1, again in Ephesians, verse 17, 
Let the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That is a part of the one spirit of this one company. We need this. A wise and revealing spirit. That's what we need. But how are we going to get it? Well, it says in our version, in the knowledge of him. I suggest there's another meaning, and it's in the margin of the authorised version. For the acknowledgement of him. He's, he's not saying, now I'm going to give you another pile of knowledge, keep on piling the knowledge in. He says, no. No. If you have really entered in and understood what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to 14 has said, with all its emphasis upon the, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit, he said, I'm not going to give you one scrap more of information until I can see that it's now being accepted, acknowledged, and becoming fruitful. That's where we must be. He says, I cease to teach you, I start praying for you, that you may be given a wise and revealing spirit for the acknowledgement of him. For that is crucial. If we receive truth, and we never acknowledge it, it's just as good as though somewhere upstairs in that attic of yours that you only visit once in a blue moon, you've got somewhere something that might be useful, but you never find it, you never think of it, you never look for it. Truth is only truth in the full sense of the word if it's acknowledged. And you know as well as I do, there's many a child of God who has come up against the truth of the dispensation of the mystery. And they have never said that they can't understand the meaning of the words, but they've said in their actions, we understand the meaning of them only too well, because we see if we believe that it's going to make such a difference in this or that or the other, that they cease and they fail, not because they do not know, but because they will not or cannot acknowledge. So there we have a spirit that we want to remember belongs to this one spirit of which we are concerned. In chapter 2, verse 13 <coughs> onwards, um, verse 18, perhaps we look as we haven't got much time. Uh, For through him we, the both, this is the unity that has been now made with the middle wall of partition gone. Through him we, the both, have access by one spirit unto the Father. So we've got one or two statements here with regard to the, to the fact that this um, spirit which forms this unity, this one spirit that must pervade all, is associated with our calling, is associated with our spiritual gifts, is associated with our very conflict. It gives us the one weapon that God has entrusted to us. And so all these things should be kept in mind and focused upon this great subject. Well now, <clears throat> shall we look at one or two other passages just in passing with regard to the uh, other side of the story that those who belong to, as they feel, the Pentecostal dispensation and see in certain teachings of scripture that which confirms them. Let's look at one or two passages. Uh, first of all, 
John the first chapter. John is baptizing with water. And in verse 29 it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After thee cometh a man which is preferred before thee, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Well now that's often been taken as being uh, the legitimate experience of a child of God today. That in opposition to the limitations of John the Baptist's baptism, here we have the baptism of Christ on the members of his church. That they shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. But there's a parallel passage in Matthew the third chapter and I've stressed before, and I must stress it continuously, that just as right division is an essential principle of interpretation, so is the other one that we get in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, the words which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. Well now, here's another record of that baptism and the words that were said. Matthew the third chapter, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. But there's other words added. And with fire. Now John had no need to say that, because he was stressing just the one fact, that by that baptism at Jordan, Christ was made manifest to him, and he pointed him out as the Lamb of God. But in this case, it's telling you, more specifically, what the baptism by the Spirit involved. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then if we stop there, we haven't read enough. Whose fan is in his hand. Fan. What's a fan for? Well, we might say to keep you cool, but you'll find it has to do with winnowing the chaff from the wheat. And he will truly purge his floor, that's the granary floor, and gather his wheat into the garner, that he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I say it's a very extraordinary thing for a believer to boast that he is expecting to be baptized with the Spirit and with fire. Those that are get that are touched with the fire, the unquenchable fire of the chaff. This is judgment. This is not baptizing poor sinners into the membership of the body of Christ and blessing them with all spiritual blessings. This is purging his floor with sand and with fire. I think we ought to hesitate then to take these things to ourselves and say it's all one and the same as the one baptism of Ephesians 4. It cannot possibly line up with it. Shall we look at the Acts of the Apostles, the first chapter? The Acts of the Apostles and the first chapter. Verse 5. 
Uh, for truly, John truly baptized with water. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Well, that's a definite reference to Pentecost. Not many days hence. They were baptized. And they did speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But that mustn't be carried over into any dispensation because it was specifically said to this company that stood before the Lord at that time. There's another expression which sometimes is used, especially in a prayer meeting. Calling upon God to make a demonstration of the Spirit and with power. as a partial quotation from the Scriptures. But the demonstration of the Spirit and the manifestation of the Spirit are those things which have to do with powers and signs and miracles and wonders and belong in their right context to an earlier time. I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, we've got a word that is sometimes roped in in this connection. Oh no, this is the, um, this is the way in which the apostle has used it of himself. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, of my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Well, when he spoke in demonstration of the Spirit, and he spoke in power, you will discover that there was something a little more than a persuasive argument. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. That's a little different from persuading somebody by reasoning. This is a power from on high. And in Romans, the 15th chapter and the 19th verse, speaking of himself, the Apostle says, Verse um, 18, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Well, he is an apostle who had all these signs and evidences, mighty signs, wonders, and power by the Spirit of God. Well, we have not mighty signs and wonders and that element, that side of power by the Spirit of God. This takes me back to a holiday that we had in Devonshire some years ago. It was a Christian institute, but it was extraordinarily Pentecostal. Well, we could we could endure that. There were some things that we could rejoice over and some things that we had to just mark time about. And one of the little services that was conducted by the leader, he was going to deal with the word power in the New Testament. And there he went solidly and stodgily right through the Acts of the Apostles and many of these early epistles and he closed the book and sat down, but not like our Saviour, saying, this is fulfilled. Oh, I was itching. I said, when are you going to the other side and speak about the power of his resurrection, the power that worketh in us quite independently of signs? That he got no idea, man of God as he was, that there was any power in the scripture except signs and wonders and speaking with tongues. Well, then he gave out on one occasion that they, were, they would have a prayer meeting. And he said it was going to be held in this particular room. And you know how many went? One person. And that was me. 
So he was praying with agony of spirit that the Lord would give a revival. And I prayed that, O oh Lord, if it is true in thy word, that the day will come or they will not endure sound doctrine, give us grace not merely to be asking for a revival, but ask for grace to stand alone in the midst of a declining world, if need be. Now, don't you see? We've got to so be on our guard that the question of dispensational truth is not looked upon merely as a tag. It governs all our calling, all our hope, all our understandings, our walk and our witness. And it's very much to do with this question of the meaning of the one spirit of Ephesians chapter 4. I don't think there's very much more that I need say except to remind you uh, just one other passage in case it's, ne- it's needful in the Acts of the Apostles, the 8th chapter and the 19th verse we get this statement. Oh, I'll look at verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them <clears throat> that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Well, people today say that they have received the Holy Ghost in like manner. But do notice the next verse. But when Simon, now who's Simon? We're not talking about Peter this time. There's somebody else called Simon, a certain man called Simon in verse 9, which before a time in the same city (coughs) used sorcery and bewitched the people, giving himself that he was a great one. He was converted. Well, this Simon couldn't shake off his past quite so quickly. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, and on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, and so on. But you see the point. An ungodly man like Simon, with all the past of his trickery, he could see something. Well, can anyone in this congregation or anyone listening to me who have been brought into the light of truth and salvation through the preaching of the gospel, have you been able to exhibit something at that very moment to some ungodly person that he can see except a consistent manner of life and a walk that's worthy? So that we mustn't be fooled ourselves. We can take to ourselves the passage that's used in another context. We walk by faith and not by sight. We have no external evidences. If God is pleased to answer our prayers with some visible uh, answer, we are thankful for it. But many a time we have to remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you are anxious or you cast all your care upon the Lord, the answer is guaranteed. It will come. But when you come to the parallel in our epistles, we are not to be anxious. It says the answer is guaranteed. But what is the answer? You're going to get what you ask for? Doesn't say so. It says you'll always get one answer. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall gather in your heart and mind. You see? So, 
Let's be careful how we use even the question of prayer and answer to prayer as it belongs to one dispensation or it is indicated in another. So we're looking in this series at the fact that this church, the church of the body of Christ, with its great title, The Fullness of Him That Filleth All in All, is made up of members who in the first case were two companies divided by ordinances, ceremonials, addiction to legalism, and many other things. But that the middle wall of partition that stood between them has been destroyed, the bond of peace has been sealed by the blood of Christ, and our Christian walk is immediately associated with one thing, to make it our business to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All our other activities are legitimate and right, and they may differ one from another. But if we are at all indifferent, or unconcerned, or wrong with regard to the heart of this calling, if it doesn't matter to us whether we keep the unity of the Spirit or not, or whether we keep the seven of them or not, or whether we are mixed up with regard to how far they belong to our calling and somebody else, then the very heart of the matter is at fault, and we shall be betraying the truth to the enemy at our gate. So let's be patient. If we are taking a long time to look at these members, it'll do us good to face up to him, won't it? Well, the next time we meet together, we shall discover that it doesn't merely say there is one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord. It doesn't say that. It says there's one body and one spirit. Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Why does it stop and say it that way? Do you know? You say no. We'll come again next Thursday and we'll see if we can get an answer. And those of you who can't come again next Thursday, well, we hope to meet you in this other medium by the tape recording. And may the Lord bless us as we seek to make it our business to keep this unity of the Spirit in the bond of perfection and the bond of peace.